A paradox is defined as something contradictory that doesn't make sense, which may end up being logically true. I'm Daniel Kuberek, and joining me today is Kent Kingston, who will tell us how we can apply the Jesus paradox in our own lives. This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Welcome to Signs of the Times Radio. For most of you, my voice is slightly a little bit unfamiliar because I'm not usually the host of the show. That's usually Kent, who's actually joining me in the show today because he wrote an article for us in the March edition called Jesus Paradox. Kent, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you, Mr. Daniel Kubarek? I'm really well too, thank you. Now, now we've had a pretty intense past week, haven't we? Because we were in Tasmania. Yeah, well, and well, we did get to Melbourne, but uh, my plane was delayed for six hours or something ridiculous, so <laughs> I, I never got to make the appointment to Melbourne. But Tassie was great, really loved it. Like the weather there, like it was raining here in Sydney apparently, and there it was clear and crisp and ah, oh, love it. Bernie, Hobart, yeah, looking forward to getting back there sometime. That's right. And while we were in Melbourne, I actually, I had the chance, well, your flight was delayed, obviously, but I had the chance to visit our printing press where signs and magazines are printed and then distributed. And that was really interesting. Like there was this rack with 10,000 copies of the April edition waiting to be dispatched. And it was just crazy looking at it sitting there. <laughs> there was a little bit of a, I don't mean pride is probably the wrong word, but it's sort of your, your little baby that we've put together just sitting there about to be sent out to all the people that read the magazine. That was pretty awesome. Yeah, it's it's pretty exciting, isn't it? And and I guess if, you know, there are people out there who are listening who say, hey, wow, that, that sounds interesting. I'd like to get one of those into my letterbox. Well, you just need to jump online, signsofthetimes.org.au and hit the subscribe button. You like what I did there? That's right. Yeah, a little shout out from the top. <laughs> now, something happened last Friday a week ago from when we we're recording this this show yeah. that was shocked the world, shocked us, and it sort of a little bit ties into what we're going to be talking about today in some senses. How did how did you react to that? It was obviously it's incredibly sad, so mournful. What were the first thoughts that ran through your mind when you found out about it? Yeah, well, look, the sadly ironic thing for us is that we were at Port Arthur in Tasmania at the time where, you know, what that must be Australia's worst mass shooting uh, occurred back in, in 1996. And and while we're there, we hear on, on the radio that there's been a uh, mass shooting in Christchurch, two mosques shot up there by a a neo-Nazi or, or white supremacist gunman. Yeah, absolutely horrific. And 50 people dead now, I think 48 injured. So, you know, that, that's nearly 100 people directly physically impacted by this and the ripples to spread out from there in terms of family and friends. And, and as you say, Daniel, you know, all, all around the world, the the shock is, yeah, it's it's palpable and it's causing a lot of soul searching, I think. That's right. And despite the fact that we identify as Christians, it, in, in times like these, we all come together and support our, our Muslim brothers and sisters, really. Like you mentioned, we were in Port Arthur when it happened. I was literally standing in the area where the cafeteria used to be, where it happened mm. in 1996. And I was I was there taking photos and, and gathering a bit of research on what happened in 1996 about the massacre there. And then I received a text from my mum saying, hey, did you hear about Christchurch? The first thought that went through my mind was, 
oh no, it's been another another earthquake. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because they had one, I think, pretty ba- big one in 2011, then another one in 2016. So yeah, I, I can understand why why you would have thought that. But you know, this has been described as an an unnatural disaster. That's right, and yeah, your heart really goes out. But the reason I bring this up, one of the people that you bring up in your article is Malala Yousafzai, and mm. she's obviously a Nobel Peace Prize winner in 2014. But why did she win that Nobel Peace Prize? And what is really her significance? Because she's only 21 years old. She's like younger than me. And yet mm. she's so well known all over the world because of her humanitarian activities. Yeah, look, M- Malala's story is is incredible and, and incredibly inspirational. The story goes back right back to when she was uh, 11 years old. And she comes from a, a Muslim family who uh, who lived in the, the Swat Valley in Pakistan, a beautiful uh, area in, in Pakistan, but it was an area relatively close to the Afghanistan border. And it was an area that was targeted by the Taliban. And the Taliban actually took over Pakistan's uh, Swat Valley, and a, a part of their agenda and and their program was to shut down girls' education. Um, you know, they believe basically that uh, the place of a, a woman and a girl is safely tucked away at home, while it's the men, you know, who who do the the public duties, and it's and it's the boys who get the education in, in order to prepare them to be men. So, so Malala was basically, you know, forced to leave school, which she absolutely hated. I mean, like a, a lot of eleven-year-olds, she absolutely loved school. Her dad's, you know, quite an educated man and had been, you know, quite outspoken about some things. So, she somehow managed to get in contact with the BBC, and she started blogging and reporting on events that were that were happening in the Swat Valley while the Taliban was taking over and while they were in power. Um, this was all, all done anonymously, as I said, so no one really knew who, who she was. But there was, I guess, a lot of interest worldwide in her telling her story about this and her expressing her annoyance at the fact that she'd been you know, kicked out of school um, simply because she was a girl. I mean, I guess... A, a lot of us may have had our our fifteen minutes of fame, as as Andy Warhol, you know, said back in the the sixties or seventies. But Malala used this even like after the Taliban left, and and even after her identity became known. Rather than sort of getting on with her her you know quiet life, she continue to be passionate about girls' education and continue to use the the little bit of um, sort of fame that she'd gained through through this to continue to advocate for girls' education. And yeah, boy, she did it in Pakistan, uh, first of all, and the the remnants of the Taliban were still around. You know, there's still extremist groups there, you know, to this day, as, as we know. And very sadly, a, f- a few years later, she was on on the bus on on the way to school, and a um, a gunman came onto the onto the bus and asked, "Who is Malala Yousafzai?" And she said, "It's me." And at that point, he shot her in the face. The bullet, you know, didn't kill her instantly, but it did go sort of through through her her face and and down into her shoulder. I guess, you know, the shot was coming from above and this sort of, I guess, because she did have this sort of notoriety, she was rushed to hospital and eventually ended up in in the UK where she actually recovered incredibly enough. And that was, you know, a worldwide story that gave her even more, more attention than before. The media just went nuts. 
And once she recovered, you know, did she shut up and retreat into, you know, into safety? No, she continued even further her advocacy for girls' education. And, you know, she's been to refugee camps in Syria, uh, sorry, refugee camps where, uh, you know, Syrian and Iraqi refugees are there and, you know, the kids don't have school and she's helping set up schools there and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's not really surprising that the the Nobel Prize Committee saw her as someone worthy of receiving the Nobel Peace Prize, which which she did. So, yeah, look, that's that's Malala's story. And I just find her incredibly inspirational. Yeah, he's just this, you know, this Muslim school schoolgirl who's having a, a worldwide impact and just seems to have this incredible moral authority. Those of us who know you know that you're a very passionate social justice advocate in a way. A lot of your articles raise social justice issues and it's something that you, you talk about quite a bit. What's it about this story that really draws you in? Is it because she's so young? Is it because she's faced this trauma and is sort of surpassing the adversity. What, what is it about Malala that had really caught your attention and made you want to make a comparison later on in the article to one of the greatest figures in history? Hmm. Jesus Christ himself, yeah. yeah. I think M- Malala's story highlights for me a strange law of of nature or, or of the universe, perhaps it's not really a law of nature. It seems to go opposite to the laws of nature. You know, we we see sort of survival of the fittest. You know, in in nature, you know, nature is red in tooth and claw, and you know, he who has the the might has the right. You know, that that's the sort of way that we believe the world works sometimes, um, and we see that at work so often. But with Malala's story, I think we just catch a glimpse of another set of principles at work where someone who is incredibly powerless, who nevertheless stands on the side of right, seems to look, seems to somehow have the, you know, the cosmos in in her favour. I I think it was Martin Luther King uh, Jr. I I think he was actually even quoting someone else when he said it. He said, "The, the arc of the universe bends towards justice. And I think we we get get a glimpse of that with Malala's story. We also get a, a glimpse of the the strange paradoxical power of the powerless. And we, yeah, we we see that in Malala. We see that I think also in the the non-violent movements of people like Martin Luther King Jr. or of Gandhi, for example. You know, on the other side, we've got people with guns. We've got people with authority. We've got people in government. But you have these people who basically boldly and calmly and clearly and repeatedly continue to speak up for justice, to speak up for what's right, and somehow they prevail. Somehow they capture our attention. Somehow we recognize that in their words and in their actions is a, a deeper truth and a deeper reality than those who, you know, strut the world stage and, you know, beating their chests and you know, waving their their missiles around and and threatening us. Yeah, exactly. Now, that word that you brought up there, paradox, is a really interesting one. I've heard the the word quite a bit and it's fascinated me. For example, when they talk about time travel and the possibility of time travel, that's one word that's used quite often is time travel won't be possible because of the paradoxes that it would create. So, like if you go back in time to when you were a baby, then two of you would exist at the same time 
or like the movie Inception paradoxes I used uh, quite a bit in regards to just things that are created that don't make sense. Now, what? Yeah, what the, com- the, the, the movie for me, Daniel, is probably more from my my growing up era rather than yours. Back to the Future, Marty. <laughs> That's right. You can't see yourself, Marty. It'll be a paradox. That's yes, right. a disruption in the space time continuum. Yeah, that that is one way to use the word paradox, certainly. But how how, how have you defined it in in your context in in regards to Malala and and later in the article in, in, in regards to Jesus Christ, is it that they behaved in a way that didn't make sense, that w- wasn't possible? How, how do you define paradox in the context of these people? Yeah, I, I think a, a paradox, I mean, what's the definition of a paradox? It's, it's certainly something that is counterintuitive to a certain extent. It's something that doesn't necessarily seem to make logical sense on the surface. So I, I guess what a paradox is a truth that rests on a contradiction. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the easiest definition that, that I, could, I could give. It's true, but somehow it's contradictory. It doesn't make sense, but it still works. That, that's a paradox for me. And, and I guess Malala is an example of that. You know, someone who is incredibly powerless, yet somehow... Uh, amazingly powerful. Yeah, exactly. And having been wronged in her life and, and, and been shot and everything, she could be a person that, you know, would rightly you'd understand if she held a lot of anger. And yet she's mm. instead gone and she's got her, her own charity foundation now where she's advocating all for, for education and these sorts of things. But you also mentioned in there about the death of Jesus Christ. Now, this yeah. is a very significant event for a lot of Christians and oh, absolutely. other people in general. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. Other people in general, because, you know, the entire history is divided in two by the life of Christ. You know, we talk about, you know, BC and AD or, you know, BCE and, and CE, regardless of, you know, which terminology you use, that is basically dated from the, the birth of Jesus Christ. You know, definitely the most significant person who, who ever lived, regardless of if you are a Christian believer believe it or not. Now, can you just tell us about the significance of Jesus' death on the cross, how it came about? How was it paradoxical? Well, look, I think to answer that question, first of all, we need to go back before talking about the death of Jesus. I think we also need to talk about his life because his life was also a paradox. Here you have someone who, I mean, if, if you're, a, you're a Christian believer or you, you believe in the Bible, you know, there is these predictions about a chosen one, a, a Messiah who would come to transform everything. And there's uh, was definitely a belief in Bible times that this Messiah would be possibly a king. You know, he's called the, the son of David. You know, David was a king. So this is a descendant of David, you know, obviously going to be a king. There's language described to describe this coming Messiah as as a warrior, as a conqueror and, and all this sort of stuff. And then Jesus of Nazareth turns up. He's born, you know, as the Christmas, as we know from the Christmas story, he's born in a stable, you know, an, an animal shelter. His first bed is a, a animal feed trough. His parents are sort of simple working class people from a, a little village on the on the outskirts of, of Israel. It's not a very auspicious you know, beginning for someone who is is supposed to be the king of the universe or, or the coming Messiah or, or the conquering king and hero. So Jesus' very identity as a human being is paradoxical in some way. You know, how could someone so humble 
actually have such a huge impact on history. And yet, as we know, he he certainly did. Can I just interject here? Sure, you, you absolutely. Actually, you actually mentioned that Jesus was a child refugee, which is a very interesting comparison, well, that's true. isn't it? Well, well, he was because uh, again, uh, you know, when we look at, at the Christmas story, we see that the you know th- there is this imbalance of power where the the king of that region, uh, Herod you know, hears about this Messiah who has been born and basically freaks out. He's paranoid as, as a lot of um, sort of dictator types are and basically goes on a, a rampage to to slaughter Jesus or anyone who could possibly be, you know, this uh, Messiah. But Jesus and his, and his parents are, are warned, of, well, Jesus' parents are warned about this, his uh, father in particular, and they escape over the border into Egypt, which is exactly the definition of, of a refugee. You know, you're, you're facing oppression or persecution in your own country. So you have to disappear over a border and seek refuge in, in another country. And that's exactly what Jesus and, and his family did, you know, when he was just uh, just an infant. They returned later on to to Nazareth where, where he continued to grow up there. But yeah, you're exactly right. You know, Jesus was in fact a, a refugee. So yeah, not, not only from a, a small obscure village, not only from a, you know, relatively poor uh, working class family, but also even, yeah, a refugee at one stage. So yeah, the, I guess this just underlines Jesus' powerlessness from a from a human point of view. Do you think that informed a lot of Jesus' teachings because Jesus was God becoming flesh? Mm. He does end up having a lot of social justice teachings like in the Sermon on the Mount that you mentioned in your article, Matthew chapter five to seven, yeah. where he, he talks about the meek inheriting the earth. Do you think that those experiences informed that? Yeah, look, it's interesting you use the word social justice there because I, I know some people have pounced on Jesus' life and teachings and seen uh, a message of, of uh, a fairly, I guess, left leftish um, political message there. I'm not sure we can truthfully do that. I mean, yes, Jesus did uphold the poor. Jesus did uphold the oppressed. Jesus, as you mentioned, Daniel, in the the Sermon on the Mount, he basically said, hey, look, you know, if things are are tough now, but listen, you know, you you guys are the blessed ones. He seemed to be saying that in a spiritual sense more than anything. He had people, even amongst his own disciple group, who really believed that the the Romans who were the you know the pagan empire that was that was occupying Israel at the time like Simon the zealot uh, was one of Jesus disciples now the zealots were a group who believed that those Romans needed to be kicked out Jesus didn't identify himself with the zealots. He never said anything about overthrowing Roman authority. And this is, I think, puzzling for those, uh, you know, those of us who are attracted to a a social justice sort of message. Um, Those of us who, I guess, get into that whole uh, sort of Marxist um, sort of class warfare sort of idea that, you know, Jesus takes sides and he takes sides uh, against the rich with the poor. Well, I don't know. You know, Jesus went to rich people's um, houses. He he hung out with collaborators of the regime. Jesus' way seemed to be not so much, you know, identifying just with the poor, not so much identifying just with the rich, but he seemed to accept all people as human beings. He challenged all people on on their lives and what they were doing. He challenged all people to accept the the kingdom of God. And yes, I would have to concede that Jesus' harshest words were reserved for the religious 
leaders of his own nation. That is absolutely true. He was really tough on them. But I think to call Jesus a social justice warrior is to is to be inaccurate. He was, yes, there are aspects of that, but there's more than that. There's a real temptation with Jesus, I think, to make him in our own image, to sort of try to squash him into the um, into our, our pre-existing ideas. And, and I've seen this done, you know, with liberation theology. I've certainly seen it done with uh, people who are, you know, wealthy and rich in, in the West who, you know, say, you know, when Jesus says things like, give all your possessions to the poor and come and follow me, and that they very quickly reply, but of course, Jesus doesn't require that of all of us. <laughs> you know, as if they're trying to look for a loophole. Jesus did require that of some people. And, the, and surely the question we should have if we are a rich, richer person and if we live in the West in a place like Australia or New Zealand, then yeah, we are a, a part of the, the 1% really. So the question for us is what if Jesus did ask us to, you know, to give up our wealth and to give to the poor and, and follow him? It's a, a bigger, Jesus' identity and Jesus' agenda was much bigger than simply social justice. Now, you also mentioned in your article about uh, the death of Jesus Christ and, and mm. the significance of that. How does that event sort of inform the Jesus paradox or, or what does it tell us about the Jesus paradox? Well, look, Jesus, through his life and teachings, suggested this sort of paradox a, a lot of times. I mean, you, you mentioned the Beatitudes, absolutely, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, what? How does how, That doesn't make sense. He also said things that just seem crazy to us, like the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He said, the one who tries to save his life will lose it. And the one who loses his life for my sake will gain it. You know, all these sorts of strange paradoxical things. And yeah, the way that he went to his death, I guess, reinforced this paradox. And perhaps every other paradox that he lived and said up to that point was leading up to to this, you know, final climactic, you know, crucial paradox. And that is the image of of Jesus on the cross. You know, this is just seems like a, a crazy idea. You know, here is someone who was prophesied about for, for hundreds of years or thousands of years uh, beforehand, um, someone who's supposed to be a conquering Messiah. And there he is considered a criminal, convicted in a, a kangaroo court, you know, totally corrupt process, he he's tortured, you know. He, he's whipped, and then he's he's nailed to a a wooden a wooden frame, a, a wooden cross, and and left there to to dangle, um, and, and to die. I mean, how much more powerless can you be? It's the ultimate act of humility, really, isn't it? Well, humiliation. It's the ultimate act of humiliation. The, you know, the the polite uh, pictures and uh, Christian pictures and statues don't show us is that, you know, crucifixions were often done naked. So there's every chance Jesus was actually pinned up there absolutely naked, which is seen to be a humiliation in, in that culture. And I think today even we would see it as, as a humiliation and an incredible loss of dignity. And yet the words that Jesus spoke while he was on the cross, you know, there, there, was, there were two thieves who were crucified, one on, on each side of him. And, and he offered, you know, one of those thieves who, who said, you know, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said, look, I... I, t- I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. You know, he said these profound words. He saw his disciple there, um, John, at the foot of the cross and, and his mother there. And he asked that disciple to look after his mom and said, look, you know, from now on, you know, my mom is your mom and, and mom, he said, 
John, my my beloved disciple, will now be like your son. So he said these things, and he even and the thing that really blows me away is that he said he prayed. He prayed to his father while he was there being crucified. He prayed for those soldiers who were actually in the process of you know nailing you know spikes through his hands and feet. He said, "Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing." Mm. I mean, that to me is incredibly transcendent. That that says there is something going on here that is beyond the everyday. The way that he died was an incredible paradox, and yet, yet because we see these glimpses of some greater, some greater order, some underlying principle, some, uh, I guess, as C.S. Lewis says, you know, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a deeper magic, you know, at work. I don't, maybe you know some of our listeners won't be comfortable with with that message, but if if you've read the book, you, you you'll know what I mean. There is something going on here, and I guess the truth of that paradox was vindicated when Jesus actually was resurrected. You know, on, on the third day uh, after he died, and that showed us that yeah, as Jesus said, you know, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's another paradox, you know, the one who exalts himself will be humbled. Jesus humbled himself and he was exalted by humbling himself even unto, unto death, you know, to make himself as a servant, as a human being, ends up with him being incredibly glorified and incredibly praised. And he is the human hinge on which all of history turns. That's right. And when we look at these two two characters of, of Malala and, and you know, to more so Jesus Christ, when mm. we look at their paradoxical behavior and then we look at our own lives, what can we do to apply that sort of thing in our own lives? How can we sort of reflect these characteristics that Jesus Christ exhibited, that the Jesus paradox characteristics? Man, that is such a good question, Daniel. You're right. I mean, because, I mean, what is the point of this if it's just theory and it, it's just sort of a, a novelty? You're right. It has to get practical. And, and I think for any of us who seeks to follow Jesus, who seeks to model our lives on on Jesus, we have to do some serious thinking. You know, there there is the way of the world, you know, the way of power, the way of domination, the way of basically, you know, strategizing in order to, to get on top, to, to have the upper hand. But that's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is to love your enemies. You know, the, the way of Jesus is, is to be vulnerable. The way of Jesus is to, to make it possible for people even to take advantage of you sometimes in, in the service of, of a higher, a higher order, a set of higher principles. And, and I believe that if we do that, if people treat us with, with anger, with, you know, with aggression, with, with violence, if we respond with kindness and gentleness and, and we turn the other cheek, as Jesus said, that can be incredibly transformative. I mean, we've seen this in Christchurch, you know, with these Muslim congregations that, you know, they haven't responded with violence. They haven't responded, you know, I'm, I mean, no doubt they feel angry, but they haven't acted out that that anger. And, and I believe that that is the hate cannot conquer hate. Only love can do that. Mm. And I think that's really what, what it's about. Yes, it makes, uh, uh, it makes us incredibly vulnerable, but I think it's the only way to sort of break this pattern of tit for tat, this pattern of revenge that we see in our world. You know, we, we need a new approach. We, we need a humble approach. And I really believe we need that Jesus paradoxical approach in order to make a positive difference to this world. And exactly. And w- with what happened last week in Christchurch, I've, I've seen so many stories online of, say, for example, 
this person went to a hairdresser and he, he's a Christian man and he was, mm. his, his hair was being cut by a Muslim man. And uh, the Muslim man asked, are you, are you Christian? And he's like, yeah. And the Muslim man said, can I, like with tears in his eyes said, can I pray for you? And they, and they prayed together, even though we, you know, a lot of people around the world are persecuted for, for their own various faiths and religions and, and stuff. Is that, is that the sort of thing that, you know, shows the true character of Jesus Christ in, in how we respond to that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, with, without a doubt. We certainly need to look for connection points with people. And we, yeah, we, as I said, we need to even make ourselves vulnerable in an effort to reach out and connect with those people, even people who, who have hurt us. I'm, I'm not saying we we should allow abuse to continue. You know, When we see it, of course, we should step up and, and defend the powerless. But there, there does come a time where the most powerful thing to do is to actually, I guess, you know, lie down in in front of the the riot police, and do, do do something unexpected, do something paradoxical. And I believe the more that we're in touch with with Jesus, you know, through the through the influence of the Holy Spirit, the more we've surrendered our lives to Him. The more those, you know, apparently illogical, uh, incredibly paradoxical strategies and and methods and responses will uh, will become apparent to us. Absolutely. Well, Ken, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and, and pick your brain a little bit about your article. And thanks thanks for writing us again, even though you are the editor of the magazine. So <laughs> it was you calling the shots. But thank you so much for joining us today on Signs of the Times Radio. See you later. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. This is an Adventist Media podcast.